This podcast is offered to you by Zen Center North Shore on the web at www.zencenternorthshore.org. This program is made possible by donations from listeners like you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, my, my, my wife sometimes, uh, I, I wonder if that's what initially attracted her. Anyway, that, that's another topic. <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy that you can see them on the, on the uh, light here. I can't if they can be seen at all. My screen. I, I appreciate Joan uh, referencing, um, you know, what happened yesterday. I think many of us are still sort of digesting or recuperating from that, something we never expected to see. But I, but I think we need to put that into a, a larger vision uh, and acknowledge that uh, it's ironic that just when humanity has, for the first time, achieved a truly global civilization, this global civilization seems to be self-destructing. Uh, a few months ago, Noam Chomsky said that this is the most dangerous time ever, ever in human history. And frankly, I haven't been able to think of a more dangerous time. Um, he referenced particularly um, authoritarianism, which I guess would include, you know, what happened yesterday, the kind of threat to democracy. He also talked, of course, about the the climate crisis, and something that we don't often think about, but it's still very real, uh, the danger of nuclear war. Uh, but of course, t- to those three things that he highlighted, there are so many more that we, we could add to it. I mean, and Joan referred to uh, COVID, for example. Um, but also, I think we always need to keep in mind that although we spend so much time talking about the uh, climate crisis, that's just really the tip of the ecological iceberg. When you consider also uh, the sixth great extinction event, the fact that so many other species are disappearing, and not all of that is due to climate issues. Uh, plastics, pollution, uh, so many toxins in the air, in the earth, in the water, in our bodies, uh, And that's not even talking at all about things like uh, uh, social injustice. I mean, I think this year we've had yet another course, another set of examples of, uh, you know, uh, institu- racism, both institutionalized and, and individual. Uh, our attitude toward refugees and undocumented immigrants and so forth and so on. Um, You know, put, putting all this together, I, I invite you to consider what I sort of hinted at at the beginning, that we we seem to be in the process of, uh, how to say it, we seem to be a civilization that has lost its way. And the important question for us this evening, for us as Zen students and as Buddhist practitioners generally, what does Buddhism have to offer that can help us understand and respond to this uh, situation? 
I'm reminded of uh, a couple favorite uh, Zen stories, Mondo, if you will. Um, and one of them, the student asked the master, uh, what should we do when difficult times come? And this is kind of hard to show on Zoom, but I'll try. The master sort of extended his arms and said, welcome. Welcome. It's like, I mean, that's important. It's just remind us, you know, our path is not about avoiding difficult times. Quite the contrary. I think many of us have the sense that it's in responding to difficult times that the most spiritual growth happens. And the other Zen story that uh, always comes to mind for me that I like very much. Let me make sure I get it right here. Um, a student asked Unman or Yunmen in China, right? What's the goal of a lifetime of practice? What's really the goal of our long-term devotion to practice? And uh, he responded, an appropriate response. Or I guess, as I prefer to say it, uh, responding appropriately. It's like, what are we learning through our practice? We are learning to respond appropriately to the situations that we find ourselves in, right? But given what I've just said about the multiple interacting crises that we're facing, how do we possibly respond appropriately to that or to them? The Buddha lived maybe 2,400 years ago in a very different time and place, right? Uh, I mean, Iron Age India. So it's not as though we can go back to the Pali Canon or indeed any of the other Buddhist texts and just kind of read off from that what we should do today because our situation is so different. Uh, and yet, you know, there are all kinds of sort of implications or extrapolations that we can make from Buddhist teachings. The one that frankly fascinates me the most is what I see as a pretty remarkable parallel between what Buddhism has always said about our individual predicament and our collective predicament today in relationship to the earth. Right? I mean, one way of understanding the basic teaching is that, you know, Buddhism is denying the delusion of a separate self, um, uh, and that in, in some profound way, that's very much at the core of our dukkha, dissatisfaction, suffering. Uh, and it really seems to me it's this, it pretty much the same problem today when we look uh, at when we look for the source of the ecological crisis. I mean, I think what we really f go back to is the collective sense of a separation from the planet, the fact that we feel separate from the earth and therefore we can use it, abuse it in whatever way we want, because somehow we feel that our well-being is separate from its well-being. And the basic, you could say from that perspective, the ecological crisis is just the, the, the karmic fruit of that, of that attitude. Anyway, that, but that's another talk. What I'd like to talk about today is actually what I think is the most important contribution of Buddhism in in response to or in face you know facing the kinds of challenges we face today and that's what i would call the bodhisattva path or as i'll explain later as i preferred to call it uh, the new bodhisattva path or even the ecosattva path and and so that's my topic for this evening and what i'd like to do is basically make three points i guess every good talk and a lot of bad talks uh, 
make three basic points, right? So, uh, but I'll, I'll make three basic points uh, about what I understand to be this new, I mean, not, by no means are they all new, as you'll see, but uh, three, three basic points about the Bodhisattva path, right? Or three, let's say three aspects. Um, the first one, kind of obvious, the most basic, is that bodhisattvas have a double path, or you could say a double-sided practice, uh, like a coin, the two sides, the faces. Uh, on the one hand, bodhisattvas continue to pursue their own awakening, their own individual development, but they also realize that this isn't sufficient. Uh, that by itself isn't enough that we also want to help others which who are not really other because we're not really separate from them. Um, this is really a big, I mean, for, for many Buddhists, this idea is, and well, now I'm talking to a Zen group, so maybe it's not such a big point, right? But the idea that it's, you know, the path isn't simply about our own personal development, but that it goes beyond that, um, that it requires us to sort of get beyond clinging to emptiness and focusing on our own serenity and peace of mind. Uh, and it's interesting how that tendency that is sometimes there among Buddhist practitioners, how that's the opposite of what you find, say, with uh, social justice activists or ecological activists who, uh, because they're so engaged, uh, they often, you know, I mean, it's a tough job. And so without the equanimity that something like uh, Zen practice meditation can offer, they, they often lack a kind of a stable grounding or anchor uh, for their life work, which makes them quite vulnerable to frustration. You know, I mean, it's a tough job. You, you often lose more than you gain, right? You're, um, so... I think it's really hard to avoid anger, frustration, burnout, fatigue, and so forth, uh, which, of course, has great effects on what they're able to, to contribute. So in a way, it's sort of seeing how, how beautifully those two can go together, combining the path of individual meditative development, such as we do in Zen, with the activism and how each needs the other. One of my all-time favorite quotations is actually not by a, a Buddhist, but a Neo-Vedantin named Nisargadatta, who said, when I look inside and see that I am nothing, that's wisdom. When I look outside and see that I am everything, that's love. Between these two, my life flows, right? I mean, I, I think he nails it there. Um, and he's really pointing to I mean, not only is he pointing to the two pillars of the Buddhist path, wisdom and love, or as we say, wisdom and compassion, but he shows the relationship between them, right? You could say the wisdom realizing that I'm, that there's no me really separate from the world. Uh, well, how do we embody that? How do we uh, live in a way that lives up to that realization? And that's what he calls love. And that's what we more often refer to as compassion, right? 
as 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 this new way of being in the world that follows from that wisdom from that insight i'm also reminded of a favorite quotation from the czech writer uh, uh, franz kafka who said you can live in such a way ah nope start again you can hold yourself back from the sufferings of the world that is something that you are free to do but perhaps your very holding back is the one suffering you could avoid <laughs> i just love that i'm going to say it again you can hold yourself back from the sufferings of the world that's something you can do but perhaps this very holding back is the one suffering you could avoid right i mean what's what's that pointing to because the idea the holding back reinforcing the sense of separation huh? reinforcing the sense that my well-being is separate from your well-being but at some in some deep way that reinforces the fundamental delusion that is at the source of our most fundamental suffering right joanna macy talks she says that in early buddhist scriptures there's a simple and wonderful phrase describing the relationship between wisdom and action they are like two hands washing each other it's a dance of reciprocity we usually start the path of zen and other spiritual paths because there's something wrong with our lives we we feel that there's something missing they're not as good as they should be and therefore i think you know from the beginning there's a certain kind of self preoccupation normally built into uh, it's like you know we in zen we you know we want to know who we are but it's this concern about me but the irony here is that at a certain point in our development we begin to realize that remaining preoccupied with our own mental condition with our own progress toward enlightenment that actually becomes self-defeating because it's reinforcing that sense of separate self that i alluded to so insofar as a sense of separate self is the fundamental problem compassionate commitment to the well-being of others is a really important part of the solution nonetheless i think many of us still have some sort of romanticized idea about the path i mean i'm thinking of say in the tibetan tradition somebody like milarepa who uh, you know supposedly he went all the way to buddhahood in one lifetime but he secluded himself in the cave and ended up eating nettles and his skin turned green and all that kind of stuff and and somehow we see that as the as the sort of paradigm of of what we should be like in our practice um somehow that we should that we could as it were sort of seclude ourselves and become fully enlightened and after that then maybe we'll go out and do something to help the world but i think joanna macy really hit this one in the head she had she said the world has a role to play in our awakening our engagement with other people has a role to play in our awakening and this reminded me of back in the days very early in my own career when i lived in what was then the maui zendo in hawaii and um you know we had a it, it was it was not a very japanese zendo but nonetheless it was pretty strict we had a pretty strict tough schedule and 
it, it seems to me that it wasn't that difficult to sort of get insights or to have insights or, or little openings, whatever. They, they would happen pretty often. But what I found personally more difficult was actually integrating or embodying those insights in how I actually related to other people. That was the tougher part of it, right? Um, Ramdas said it well. Hmm? Think you're enlightened? Well, go spend the holidays with your family. <laughs> right? He, he talked about our, our path as being a, a self-sharpening tool. So maybe we meditate, things happening. But then we go out there and, you know, we realize where we're still stuck. That shows us that, you know, our relations with other people really shows us where the problem areas still are. Uh, and from this perspective, you can say engagement with the world's problems isn't as we tend to fall back into, you know, engagement isn't then a distraction from our personal spiritual practice, but an essential part of it in the sense that the person who benefits most from the actions from bodhisattva activity is the bodhisattva herself, because that's part of the self-transformation, right? Um, Bob Thurman used to like to say, People are always talking about practice, practice. What I want to know is, when is the performance? And the point of this is that, you know, from, from this perspective, the performance, too, is part of the practice, uh, right? And uh, the practice, too, is, is performance. The, the performance is an essential part of our practice. I guess that's the way to say it. So... That's the first point is this double-sided path and how it's not simply that you have two things that go together, but what I've tried to point to is how our own personal development and our engagement with the world, they actually need each other. What's now going on to the, the second aspect, um, what stands out for me, and maybe this is where I would... Um, talk about the new bodhisattva path is because I think today we have a better and deeper understanding of dukkha, right? By dukkha, of course, I'm referring to that uh, term in the uh, Pali Canon. Uh, in fact, I think it's really the most important term in early Buddhism, uh, dukkha, suffering, but suffering in the broadest sense, right? Dissatisfaction, um, dis-ease. Um, so, um, I think we have a better understanding or we are able to articulate in a different way where the dukkha comes from and how to address it. Because I think we can see, unlike the way that Buddhism has traditionally emphasized, we can see that the problem with dukkha isn't simply individual. It doesn't simply work on the individual level, right? In fact, I, I think the Buddha actually had this insight, because when you go back to the earliest teachings, to the Pali Canon, uh, it's pretty clear that, as far as we can tell from those texts, uh, the Buddha had, I think, a, a deeper, more progressive understanding than the institution that developed after he died. I mean, if you look, for example, at the Buddha's attitude toward women, and not only, you know, what, what he said about, about 
marriage and mutual responsibilities, but also he created a new sangha, right? A bhikkhuni sangha, a sangha for women, because, you know, he realized women have the same potential to awaken as men. Uh, so, and, you know, now today, of course, we take that for granted, but 2,400 years ago in Vedic India, that was a pretty progressive thing. Uh, unfortunately, after the Buddha died, um, as I said, the institution, I, I think the patriarchy tended to reassert itself. And frankly, pretty much every Asian Buddhist society remains patriarchal and uh, that, that problem is far from over. But also, we can look at the Buddha's attitude toward caste, remembering that whenever you joined the Buddhist order, whether as a bhikkhu or bhikkhuni, right, monk or nun, uh, you lost caste. There were no castes in the order. You know, it, it, like, like today, it's sort of comparable to sort of, you know, uh, I guess caste there would be somewhat similar to our problems with, with racism today, for example. And, and, you know, the Buddha was colorblind, was genuinely colorblind in the sense that, you know, it didn't matter if you were a uh, Brahmin or, uh, you know, uh, a Shudra. It, it, it's like everyone had, in, the implication was everyone had the same potential to awaken. And there's some beautiful stories about that. Um, but again, after the Buddha died, that tended to be lost in the sense that that early Buddhist cult, if it wanted to survive and thrive, it needed support from authorities, kings, and so forth. And um, if you want to be supported by the powers that be, you'd better support the powers that be. And so in a way, Buddhism never challenged the dukkha created by authoritarian, maybe nasty, ruthless kings. Rather, it tended to understand its message. It's like, if, if you've got dukkha, don't blame anyone else. It's due to your own deeds from a past lifetime. Uh, in fact, Buddhism, early Buddhism tend to rationalize the power of kings because they obviously must have really, really good karma if they're born a prince and so forth. So what I'm trying to point out here is how sort of Buddhism maybe going back to what the Buddha himself said, maybe there was a, a little bit of a, or more than a bit of a social dimension that has been lost the way that Buddhism in Asia has, to de has developed, where the focus has been so much on the individual level. My suffering, my problem, it's me due to my own karma. Um, from my own past actions. And so, you know, we shouldn't blame anyone else for what happens. And so you get sometimes ridiculous and offensive things like Tibetan teacher who I once heard say, oh, what terrible karma all of those Jews in Nazi Germany must have had to be born at that time in that place. That is unacceptable, guys. That is, you know, that is, you don't blame the victim that way. And, and I think one of the things we know in the modern world, I think we have a much better sense of, of how social forces can, can sweep us along and cause, and, and cause uh, horrible things, quite regardless of how nice your own individual karma would be and how nice a person you might actually be, right? I mean, one, one way to sum all this up, uh, you know, Buddhism doesn't really talk about evil Good versus evil, that's Judeo-Christian or Abrahamic. You know, for Buddhism, it's much more 
delusion versus wisdom, or if you prefer, ignorance versus awakening. But the Buddha did highlight three fires or three poisons, the basic idea meaning that if what we do is motivated by them, it's going to create problems. So they are greed, ill will, I prefer that to hatred, ill will, negative feelings, and delusion, right? And I think that it's a really, really important point is for us to see today, to acknowledge that these three poisons have been institutionalized. If greed means you never have enough, well, I think that points to the problem with the consumer economy and also with corporations insofar as they're never big enough, their uh, profit margins are never big enough, their share price is never big enough, and so forth. Um, why is more and more always better if it can never be enough? So I think that we've institutionalized greed in that way. We have an economic system that has to keep growing if it's not going to collapse. Likewise, ill will, I think we've institutionalized that. I mean, we, we see it coming out in terms of various types of tribalism, racism, nationalism, uh, militarism, um, and delusion. Um, usually when I talk about delusion, uh, collect, and again, I'm talking about on the collective level here, usually I talk about sort of the delusion of consumerism that's built into advertising, right? Which is constantly conditioning us to think that the way to become happy is to buy this or buy that. I think what's happened in the last couple of days, and indeed maybe for the last four years or so, um, I mean, I just find it extraordinary that uh, 70% of Republicans think that the election was stolen from Trump, despite the fact that there is zero evidence for that, as the courts have ruled again and again and again. And, and so that that's really shocking. It really points to an incredible and scary divide in this country that people are sort of that, that this kind of fantasy world has been constructed and that so many people believe in it. So, again, delusion, the basic point here, delusion is not simply an individual problem. We now have a really huge problem in this country with what I would call collective delusion, you know, which is not necessarily to take sides, though I'm happy to do that, but just that there's this incredible gap between what's real, between a very large number of people on each side and um, the the threat of that is really scary um, from what I can see today I think that we have we meaning Buddhists we have a much better appreciation than say a generation ago about the importance of sort of engagement uh, self engagement in the sense of helping other individuals on that kind of one-to-one -one, um, level. Uh, you could say that we have become much better at pulling drowning people out of the river, by which, things, by which I mean things like um, prison dharma, um, uh, helping homeless people, kitchens, um, uh, hospices, and so forth. But I still think collectively there's a big problem about why is it, if we keep the drowning metaphor, okay, we're, we're better at helping people, pulling them out of the river, but why is it that there are so many more people drowning in the river, 
right? Who or what is pushing them in? I think that the kind of collective crises that we're facing now requires us to ask, right? It's not simply a matter of a bodhisattva as some individual helping other individuals. We need to come together because that's the only way to address some of these collective or institutionalized problems. And I also think, though, that highlights a problem with Buddhism. Certainly, I see it within a lot of Zen communities. You know, the Buddha talked about the three uh, Buddha Dharma Sangha, the three jewels. Well, we got a lot of uh, teachers, we got a lot of teachings, but often I get the sense that we're still relatively weak on Sangha. In, in, you know, especially it's the way that our practice, right? We come and we sit quietly, you know, maybe we listen to a Dharma talk or we have a one-on-one with the teacher, but except for tea at the end, there's not necessarily a lot of interaction. And I think that's something we need to work on because in the future, I think that may be the most important thing of all, whether we feel that we're part of a loving community of people who are there to cover us, to help us when we're in need. Yeah. Does that make sense so far? That That's point number two. The third one that I would want to emphasize is that the bodhisattva path does not tell us what to do. In fact, it, it can't, given this such a big difference between our situation now and Asian Buddhist traditions, right? It doesn't tell us what to do, but it gives us a lot of help, a lot of advice in terms of how to do what we do, right? Um, and, I, you know, climate change or clim- the climate emergency, I mean, that wasn't something the Buddha faced. And so it seems pretty natural that... Um, we're not going to be able to go back to Buddhist texts and read off how we should respond to the fact of, uh, of climate uh, um, emergency. Um, and I think also, so we need to acknowledge that I think a, n- a number of different responses are, are possible. Um, just thinking here in the Boulder area among my sort of eco-dharma friends, I have one friend who's really good, been very helpful to my wife and I about uh, when we bought this new home near Boulder, um, doing an energy audit, you know, uh, getting so that we could uh, uh, t- tighten things up so we're not wasting energy and uh, getting things like solar panels. And, you know, now we have... Uh, um, uh, um, electric car, you know, things which, I mean, I don't want to overemphasize them in the sense that just reducing our own individual carbon footprint is not sufficient, but nonetheless, it's important. And he's been very helpful to us to to enable us to do that. Uh, so that's one response. Another one, uh, another one of my friends is a, is a banker, retired banker, um, who has a a very special skill. Uh, I think because of his banking background, he knows how to talk to conservatives in a way that's more difficult for someone like me. Um, And so he spends a lot of his time with Citizens Climate Lobby. He goes into Washington and he lobbies for a carbon tax. And um, um, that's not something that I could do, 
But I think it's important that he do that, and it may well be in this new administration that that bears a lot of fruit, right? Uh, I mean, my own background is a little bit different. Back in the Vietnam War days, I was a draft resistor, and so I'm very interested in um, nonviolent civil resistance, uh, um, and I think that can play a really important role. Uh, role. So I've been a member of local Extinction Rebellion groups here. Um, Which of these is the proper Buddhist response? And I think the point is all of them, and probably many more as well. I've just cited a few. Uh, Again, Buddhist teachings don't tell us specifically what to do, but but they give us this sort of general, more general advice and, and, and how to do it. And so let me just say a few words about that how. Um, I mean, as you may know, classically, there was a lot of emphasis on, in, in, on the bodhisattva path and what is sometimes called virtue ethics. That is to say, developing certain character traits. In fact, these are the paramitas. We're supposed to perfect them. Character traits such as generosity, uh, ethical, um, ethical behavior moral behavior, uh, patience, uh, determination, meditation, and then wisdom, the wisdom beyond wisdom that we were quite, uh, chanting about earlier, right? Um, that these are essential, not just for our own personal development, but in terms of enabling us to help others and to help the situation uh, to, to the best degree. <clears throat> um, I mean, there's other things we can point to, right? Obviously, Buddhism is going to emphasize a lot uh, on um, nonviolence, as we would imagine. And, you know, all this emphasis on interdependence that we don't see engagement is as sort of good guys fighting against the evil guys. And the idea is to destroy the evil guys some way. Buddhism, we don't look at the world in that way. Everyone... I mean, one way to say it is everyone has the Buddha nature, whether it's deluded or not, and it's important not to other people, right? I think Gandhi was a wonderful example of that when, um, you know, when he dealt with the English. He, he had been trained as a lawyer in London, so he had a great respect for the English people. He always treated them, and he felt that in the long run, they would have to leave India. And, uh, you know, of course, that, that paid off for him. Um, In addition to that, a lot of emphasis in Buddhism, I think, on on, on pragmatism, uh, non-dogmatism. I mean, one of my favorite elements of Buddha's teaching is that the Buddha compared his teaching to a raft. I mean, this this really stands out for me. It's like, is there any other big religious tradition that does anything comparable? Where basically the Buddha was saying, you know, my teachings are there to help to help people, but you know, you shouldn't carry them around on your back all the time. It's like our teachings, the Buddhist teachings, they're not sacred. We don't put them on an altar. The Buddhist teachings are like a guidebook or a map to help us go somewhere, to do something, to achieve something. And because of that, you know, there's a certain kind of pragmatism, what works. So I think that's kind of built into Buddhism. Uh, and when we talk about upaya kasalya, the sort of skill and means where we're flexible in terms of how resp- our response to situations. 
But anyway, there's, there's, there's so much we could say there, but what I really want to focus on in this third point, third and final point or aspect of the Bodhisattva, the new Bodhisattva path, is what I think is the most distinctive and the most powerful thing about spiritual activism, which is that bodhisattvas act without attachment to the results of their actions. The Buddha himself in the Pali Canon, he says that one of the characteristics of an awakened person is that their actions are nidasa, which can be translated uh, without expectation or even sometimes without hope, right? Um, there's also a Tibetan Buddhist Lojong training, which offers a classic formulation of this, where it says, abandon any hope or expectation of fruition. Don't get caught up in how you're going to be in the future. Stay in the present moment. And this important teaching, I think it's important for us to realize, too, that it's not only Buddhist. It's not distinctively Buddhist, because even in something like the Bhagavad Gita, probably the most important text for Hinduism, uh, that also makes the point when it talks about karma yoga, the yoga of action, the yoga of work. It specifically says, right, your right is to the work, never to the fruits. It's working in this particular way without attachment to results that is so transformative, right? Nonetheless, there's a danger here because acting without attachment is really easily misunderstood. Um, it suggests a casual attitude, which kind of goes along with traditional Buddhist emphasis on intention or motivation. Um, so we, so we might conclude, well, what's, what's important then when I do something, when I'm engaged, is the intention behind my actions, not the results. The results don't matter. And I think that's a dangerous misunderstanding, missing the point about one attach, what non-attachment really means. And so that's what I would like to uh, finish by talking about, sort of unpacking it in three steps. The first point, please consider the difference between a hundred meter dash and running a marathon. When you're running a hundred meter race, the only thing that matters is sprinting to the goal as quickly as possible. You don't have time to think about anything else. But don't run a marathon that way because it doesn't work, right? You burn yourself out really quickly. Instead, when you run a marathon, what you have to do is you have to pace yourself following the course, but following the course without fixating on the goal line. If you're running in the right direction, you don't even have to think about the goal. In fact, what's important as many, I mean, I don't run marathons myself, but some Zen practitioners who do, they say how if you can focus on just this moment, right? Just this, tada in Japanese, just this, or tathata, thusness in, in Sanskrit, um, if you can focus on just this step, just this moment, then there, there's a kind of, kind of non-dual transcendence. There, there's a kind of sense of emptiness to it. Um, it's like you're doing, you're doing what's necessary 
I mean, you're not sitting by the side of the road and you're not running in the opposite direction. You're running in the right direction, but you can forget about the goal. What's important is to become one with what you're doing right here and now, insofar as you're moving in that direction, right? And of course, that's what our practice has always encouraged, right? When our mind wanders, we come back to the now. So I think that's one meaning of non-attachment to results, as it said with that uh, Lojong teaching, you know, don't, don't get caught up in the future, return to the now. But there's a lot more to say too. Um, for example, to, to continue the metaphor, although a marathon is a pretty long race, 26 miles and something, um, if you do it, you're gonna, sooner or later, you're gonna get to the end, it's gonna stop, right? What about a path with no end? with a task so difficult that we might get discouraged because we can't actually ever achieve it. Such as saving all sentient beings in the universe. What about that one? How do we understand that, right? I'm pretty sure that in your Zen center, as well as many others, you often recite the four bodhisattva vows. And the first one, of course, is... Um, we vow to help all living beings awaken, in effect, or it's, it can be translated different ways. Sentient beings are numberless. I vow to liberate them all. If we really understand what this commitment involves, the vow that we're taking, how can we not feel overwhelmed? We are vowing to do something that cannot possibly be accomplished. But the fact that the vow cannot be fulfilled is not the problem, actually. It's the whole point of it. Since the state where all sentient beings are liberated, since that's not going to be achieved, what the vow is really calling for is a reorientation in the meaning of our life. From our usual self-preoccupation to primary concern for the well-being of everyone, right? So on a day-to-day -day level, what becomes important is not the unattainable goal, but the direction of our efforts, a direction that orients us without any endpoint, really. And this is important because, for example, what does it mean for how we respond to the ecological crisis, which can be pretty overwhelming sometimes when you think about it? Well, someone who has volunteered for a job that's, really, that's literally impossible, which is the bodhisattva path, that person is not going to be intimidated by challenges that sometimes appear hopeless. What we're talking about is a new way of being in the new in the world, a new meaning of new orientation. It's like no matter what happens, we don't get discouraged. Or if we do, it's we don't get stuck there, right? We sort of we may need a few mindful breaths, but we pick ourselves up and we move on. Right, Because the point of this vow is that it goes far beyond attachment to any particular result. That's what I mean by saying this is beyond attachment, uh, uh, non-attachment. It's like when our efforts are successful, well, great, time to move on to the next thing. If they're not successful, well, we keep trying, maybe try a slightly different way, but we keep trying. And the point is this is not a burden or an endless hassle. 
Once we realize our non-duality with other people and with this magnificent planet that takes care of us so well, we don't want to do anything else. It becomes our passion and our joy. So that's the second meaning, that not attachment to results, because we're not focused on, I mean, results, yes, but we're not, we don't see the goal as achieving specific results. The goal is much more open-ended there. Our commitment is much more, much broader, right? But the third point, and the one that stands out for me most of all, um, let me be frank about it. Um, even if we just look at the ecological crisis and ignore all the other issues that preoccupy us these days, it looks very difficult. It looks very dangerous. And there is the very real possibility that whatever ecological efforts we make, they will be in vain. Um, the truth is, a lot of scientists, many of them privately, more and more publicly now, uh, are becoming rather pessimistic. We are very close to tipping points or may have past tipping points. Uh, it's very difficult to anticipate what's going to happen, but it doesn't look good. Um, it doesn't look good for civilization as we know it. Some people wonder even what does this mean for our survival as a species? How hot can it get and we still survive, right? We just don't know. We just don't know what's going to happen, what's likely to happen. We just don't know. Hmm. Just don't know. That sound familiar to anybody? Isn't that something that our path cultivates? Don't know mind? Of course, it's the first tenet of the Zen peacemakers, right? Uh, the other two being bearing witness to the joys and the suffering of the world and uh, taking actions that arise from not knowing and bearing witness, right? Roshi Egyoku Nakao describes this don't know mind as, quote, a flash of openness or a sudden shift to being present in the moment in which we take shelter in. I, I, would, I would prefer to say in which we open up to the place before anything arises, a place of emptiness and profound silence. So we become more spacious, more aware of our own reactivity and more open to the perspectives of others. So this isn't, it, it's not like a fixed position. It's a way of engaging with the world just as it is right here and now. We don't know what's going to happen next, but we do the best we can according to what we can see. Ready to change as the situation ready to change what we do as the situation changes or as our understanding of the situation changes. There's a wonderful little poem here by Wendell Berry that touches on this. It's called The Real Work. It may be that when we no longer know what to do, we have come to our real work. And that when we no longer know which way to go, we have come to our real journey. The mind that is not baffled is not employed. The impeded stream is the one that sings. Hmm? I love that. 
One of my Zen teachers, Robert Aiken, used to say, our task isn't about clearing up the mystery, but making the mystery clear. The spiritual path isn't about coming to understand everything. It's not like I have a Kensho and, oh, now I understand everything. It, it's, it's about opening up to experience a sacred and mysterious world where everything is changing, whether we notice it or not, and whether we understand what's going on or not. It's like bodhisattvas access this mystery not by grasping it and sort of resting serenely in it, but in being taken by it. The ego, the self, is taken by something beyond itself. Thereby, we manifest something greater than our egos. For those of us on the path, this awesome mystery isn't debilitating, as I think it can easily be understood to be, but it's empowering. It liberates us from dogmatism and other fixed ideas about ourselves and the world. So the basic idea is we do the best we can in response to the best of what we know, even when we don't know for sure what's happening or what's possible. I mean, wow, a year ago today, did any of us have any idea what that last year was going to be like? Hmm? How quickly the pandemic changed everything, right? I mean, I grew up in a world defined by the Cold War between, you know, the U.S., the Western Bloc, and the Soviet Union and its bloc. And we just took that for granted. That's just the way the world was. And then suddenly it seemed like overnight worldwide communism just collapsed. Who saw it coming? I don't think the CIA saw it coming. It's like, in retrospect, sure, we can look back and see, oh, yeah, things were, it was inevitable. Well, okay, in retrospect. But the truth is, there was a fundamental mystery there, a don't know mind. Uh, same, something similar with South African apartheid. I remember there was, it seemed like one day Nelson Mandela was in uh, prison on an island. You know, the next day he was free, and the next day he was, what is it, president of South, what? What happened? It's like, Oh my God, did anyone see that coming? You know, um, Howard Zinn put this very well. He said, there's a tendency to think that what we see in the present moment will continue. We forget how often we've been astonished by the sudden crumbling of institutions, by extraordinary changes in people's thoughts, by unexpected eruptions of rebellions, by the quick collapse of systems of power that seemed invincible. Mm. Given what happened yesterday, I mean, that's like, the. did any of us see that coming? We knew they were going to try something on Wednesday. We knew that, but did anyone see that coming? Or what the consequences would be? I'm not talking here, and I think this is really important. Um, I'm not talking here about being optimistic or pessimistic, right? That's a kind of dualistic way of thinking, right? It's like, to, to be optimistic... Let me put it this way. My, my favorite definition of a pessimist is someone who has had to live with an optimist. Right? And that shows the kind of back and forth, but, right? It's like, it's a duality, right? Uh, and the same thing even with hope. I think that's another duality, hope and fear. It's like, if, if you're motivated by hope, there's going to be kind of a, you're going to be shadowed or haunted by fear or despair, because that's the other side, the 
the hope. Losing the hope is to be thrown back into the fear. So basically, what, what I'm trying to suggest here, what I'm trying to point to is that the actions of a bodhisattva or ecosattva, uh, they're motivated by something deeper than optimism or hope. There's a kind of compassionate generosity of spirit that wants to express itself. And although it seeks results, it's not defined by them. It doesn't require them, right? Joanna Macy put this very well. She said, quote, I find that reassuring people there's hope, including myself, is not all that useful. In Buddhism, there's no word for hope. It would be viewed as a distraction from what is at hand. It takes you out of the present moment and into conjecture. I think all we can really affirm is where we want to put our attention. I have a choice. Do I want to give up and surrender to the great unraveling? Or do I want to join those who are working for a livable future? Since the outcome is uncertain, we have to enjoy doing something exhilarating and useful without knowing for sure if it's going to work out. Again, non-attachment to the results of what we do. I like the way that Vaclav Havel, the former president of the Czech Republic, I like the way that he actually redefined hope. He said, hope isn't the conviction that something is going to turn out well, but the certainty that something is worth doing regardless of how it turns out. I don't know if that's a good definition of hope, but that attitude is, is what I'm trying to point to here. Wendell Berry put it very well, I think, when he said, we don't have the right to ask whether we are going to succeed or not. The only question we have the right to ask is, what's the right thing to do? What does this earth require of us if we want to continue to live on it? I think all of this points to the deepest meaning of non-attachment to results and of the bodhisattva or ecosattva's living in don't know mind, the don't know mind in a time of world crisis. And, and it's this, and to me, this is, this kind of sums up the whole thing, everything that I have to say this evening. Our task is to do the very best we can, not knowing what the consequences will be not knowing if our efforts will make any difference whatsoever. Have we already passed ecological tipping points and civilization as we know it and doomed? Civilization as we know it is doomed? We don't know. We can't know. And that's okay. Of course, in one way, we hope we would like it if our efforts bear fruit. So we, you know, we're strategic. We don't just act as a gesture. We, we, we plan, we try to be strategic in what we do. But ultimately, our e ecological activism is 
our gift to the earth. And being a gift, it's, it's gratis, right? It's like if you give a gift because you expect or want something in return, it's not really a gift, right? It's, it's, it's something else. It's an exchange. Um, you don't give a gift with the expectation. Um, we, our ecological activism is our gift to our mother, the earth. We do not know and we cannot know if what we do is important. But we do know, we can know that it's important for us to do it. To act in this way without attachment to results is very difficult, maybe impossible, unless one also has a Guess what? A kind of spiritual practice like, like Zazen. Um, it, I think it really requires some sort of spiritual foundation. Of course, to be completely unattached to the results of our efforts, that's to set the, 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 the bounds very high, um, the bar unrealistically high. You know, perhaps no one is able to embody this attitude, complete non-attachment to results. Maybe no one is able to embody that perfectly. But, I mean, that's okay, right? In other words, our job is not to be perfect, but to do the best we can. And frankly, I wonder if at this particular point in history, we are all called upon you know, given everything that's happening, we're all called upon to become bodhisattvas, ecofatsas, in the sense that our whole understanding of this path that we are on, it's simply, it, 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 it doesn't work to think of it as simply a path of individual transformation by itself, right? Um, it seems to me that if contemporary Buddhists can't do this or don't want to do this bodhisattva path, then Buddhism is not the path that the world would need right now. But what I've tried to do in this talk is to show how much Buddhism, especially the bodhisattva path, can actually help us understand and respond appropriately to what looks like the greatest challenges that humanity has ever faced, right? It's like whatever we've learned, however our practice has changed us, uh, we need to draw upon that now. We need to rise to an incredibly difficult situation, but it's like that that's the whole point of our practice. That's what our practice, I think, has been preparing all of us for, to enable us to find ways to respond appropriately, not, not just our not to our own dukkha, our own dissatisfaction, but to rather find ways to plug in as best we can, play whatever role we can in responding to the kind of incredible situation that we find ourselves in. So why don't I leave it at that for, for the moment? Yeah. David, thank you. Thank so you much. for your attention.
So David, thank you. You are just a balm. That would be B-A-L-M for the spirit and the mind and, and the timing of this is, is, is just wonderful. It's so beautiful to meet you. Thank you so much. And I'm really aware we have some time. There are people on this call who are devoting their lives to climate work. And Shoto, you're one for sure. Fred, you're one. And I'm so glad that you're in. There are others here, I'm sure. Dave, I hope this will inspire you to start a group at the Zen Center North Shore. You keep talking about it. <laughs> Let's get it going. Um, that this will galvanize us, you know, um, in a way where we can move forward. But I think part of this, too, is I really felt, David, you being here would be so nourishing and so encouraging for people who are in this work, whether directly or indirectly, because as you're pointing out, Bodhisattva, the Bodhisattva life is this, whether or not we realize it yet. So Shodo or Fred, do you have anything that you would like to say? I want to make sure you have a chance. Uh, well, I'm grateful to be here and to be with two of my old friends and then a few more. Hi, Meg. Um, but what's what to say? So, so I'm really familiar with David's work, and um, just I just came for a bit of um, self care, and because it was Joan. Um, so um, here in Minnesota, I'm doing this thing called Mountains and Waters Alliance. Well, I've previously done some long walks and paid attention to fossil fuels and pipeline. And right now I'm suffering because I'm not at the Line 3 pipeline camp. And I'm choosing to let that be the case because I actually have work that... Um, that I need to do. Um, I feel what you said about hope, David. Um, Category once gave a talk about hope after he had already gave a talk, given a talk against hope. So this was confusing to me, but the talk he gave in favor of hope was a lot like the Vaclav Havel definition. And it's such a beautiful definition and that we have to do what we have to do. Um, I'm thinking sometime, ooh, 15 years ago or thereabouts, I noticed that I had a vow to stop climate change. I didn't decide to, to make that vow. I just noticed that it was there. And when you were talking about, oh, I can't quite retrieve it, about the calm and the this I, anyway, what I thought was maybe that bow is what protects me from disaster because as far as I can tell, there's no hope, and so I found this one little place or no no hope in the other sense, no possibility of human survival, and so I found this way to go well, but if we do that, and so so everything I do know is about. Um, recognizing and relating to all the other sentient beings. You know, I go out and pray by the, it's not a river, by the stream and by the rocks. 
and um, how what what kind of relationship can we have with them, and just how much power do they have? Because all the people who say it's too late are saying it based on human activities, and they are assuming that nothing is holy and nothing is more powerful than us, and they are wrong. <laughs> that's that's a fantasy of maybe the last 800 years, I'm not quite sure, um, the Renaissance. So anyway, thanks. Yeah, thank you for that show. I'm not saying anything because I can't, I can't add into anything to what you've said. Thank you. You know, I guess for me, there's always this um, don't know mind, you know, and the, the relationship with hope is, is, is kind of beautiful in terms of our, in terms of our practice and how wonderful it is. Fred, would you like I, to go ahead? Thank you, David. It's so good to hear you speak. I love the quotes from Wendell Berry and um, the Buddhist quotes and teachings. I'd like to quote a 16-year-old girl, Greta Thunberg, and she says, we want you to act like your house is on fire because it is. And she says that the time for hope is past and it's time for action. And it's really great to see the youth movement um, coming into their power. And, um, you know, as an aging environmentalist, um, I have felt burnout and uh, fatigue. But it's like an addiction, you know, it's something you just keep doing. I, th I like the idea about giving a gift to the earth. Mm -hmm. And who knows what the results will be. And it's just the... Um, the struggle, I guess, um, and the the disaster, the pending disaster. I'm I'm attracted to that. <laughs> um, it's not that I need a disaster, but I don't want to shy away from it, and I just don't want to ignore it. Um, and through teachers like Joan and others, I've come to learn that my climate struggle has blinded me from other struggles most specifically systemic racism. And as I've become more involved in addressing my own white supremacy, I'm becoming more in touch with uh, humanity. And I think that's um, the thing that um, indigenous wisdom teaches us that from their sacred bundle, from their original word, they had a respect for each other and a respect for the earth. And that, that was the thing that guided them. And so taking my gaze off, oh, I don't know, technology like solar panels are going to save us or policy like carbon pricing and things, that's going to save us. It's always blinded me to another movement that's going on. And that is reaffirming our humanity. And it's as we do that, we share 
we're more able to stand and face the crisis. And I know that from, from being with Joan. She's, she's, she stands courageously and looks into the teeth of these things um, with love. And um, it's good to hear you speak from your grounded place and using your wisdom uh, in, in a way that we can feel safe in looking at this calamity that we face in the climate crisis. So thank you for letting me share that. That's, uh, that's, that's the 15 years of climate crisis of <laughs> catharsis coming out there. <laughs> and to know that there's a different way than just to be consumed by the disaster. Mm. And becoming more grounded in myself so that I might be more useful. And uh, I, I like the idea that it's, it's not bad to live with this struggle. It, do, it, it takes away the contention. It's good to be just aware that there is this conflict. That there is this crisis. To live with this crisis. And not be afraid of it. And uh, again, thank you. And thank you, Joan, for having this forum. And letting me speak. Hmm. Thank you, Fred. Again, I don't, don't think I can add anything to that or, yeah. It's wonderful. Oh, 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 oh I'm sorry. I, I, George, sorry to interrupt you. That's this okay. is, this is my question, Dave. Um, if everything is unfolding as it's supposed to, I'm having trouble with allowing that unfolding to happen as it's supposed to because it's so damaging to all beings and this planet. I can't, I can't make sense of that idea that everything is unfolding as it's supposed to there. Can you please say something to that? Uh, I'm, I'm not aware that that is a Buddhist teaching. It's certainly not. <laughs> It's certainly not my teaching. Oh, uh, good. You know, that, that kind of, you know, fatalism, just accept what's happening. I mean, yeah. I think that the future is, is a lot more open-ended, open-ended than that. But, but that does point to this paradox of our practice, right? I think it was Shinryu Suzuki used to talk to his students, and he'd say, you know, you're all perfect just as you are, and you can use a little improvement, too. <laughs> and I think that's really profound because that's exactly it. It's like there's these two dimensions. On the one hand, the world is perfect, lacking nothing, just as it is, in, in the sense that we need to open up to the world as it is. But part of that perfection is, sorry, every, everyone has frozen. Uh, are you okay? Can you hear me okay? Great. I mean, I think part of the perfection is that People like us feel impelled to do what we can. That's part of the perfection. That, that's what's built into the perfection. And, and so, you know, within, within the Buddhist practice is, is, is the tension between opening up, accepting, but also not understanding that as a kind of place where we get stuck, but that there's something inherently dynamic within that, that as, as we have sort of, been able to get beyond our ego preoccupation, that, that dynamism works. It becomes 
the Bodhisattva path. Sorry, I, I guess I'm not saying that very well, but uh, that's what your question reminded me of, is I think the real challenge to our practice is somehow integrating that paradox. Mm. Thank you, David. I want to just make sure to say we weren't frozen, we were transfixed. <laughs> okay, and we're we're getting close to time, but I want to make sure, I think we have, if we can take a little bit more time, if people need to leave, then just take care of yourselves. But Dave, you, I think you wanted to ask something or say something? Please. I just wanted to say something. One, I, I've appreciated everything that you've said tonight and everything that everybody has said tonight. Um, I just wanted to thank you personally. Uh, I picked up your book, Life Against Death, when I was 23. And it uh, forever changed the trajectory of my life. And uh, that very often you get to talk to the person that, along with a few other things, had such an impact. And um, just thank you uh, for that. Thank you, Dave. Although I have to, I have to admit, I never wrote a book of that title. So I'm wondering if it's a different title or maybe you're thanking me for something that somebody else. You wrote the book on, on psychoanalysis, psychoanalysis, uh, uh, existentialism. Lack transcendence, maybe? What? Lack and transcendence? Would lack and transcendence. I'm sorry. Lack. It was so impactful that I absolutely remember the title. Wow. <laughs> no, lack and transcendence. That's the right guy. Uh, thank you. That was, thank you. It was, it was that book. Yes. Thank you. And let me just add, uh, it, that's actually my own favorite book. And I'm very happy to report that it's, it was just uh, a year or so ago. It was republished. It was out of print for a while, but it was republished by Wisdom. So and it's a much nicer edition. So thank you. Yeah, I, I too really. <laughs> I, I still have the like old copy. Thank you. <laughs> That's so wonderful, Dave. That's a beautiful way to end that kind of appreciation. And it really is such a blessing, David. Thank you for joining us. I'm glad that those of you who are able to come tonight, that you were able to witness this and feel something. Yeah. Oh, let me just add, before we chant the refuges, we end by chanting the Pali refuges, and we'll bring that up in the chat. Um, I just wanted to add, with all this talk around hope, and maybe some people know the Spanish word. It's so helpful, I think, to go to other languages. The Spanish word for hope, esperar, also means to wait. Huh. It's like, no, <laughs> right now, ahora. <laughs> so I, I've been thinking about that throughout your whole talk. You know, in our practice, it's the immediate, the immediacy of life. So thank you again, David. And this practice of chanting the refuges is uh, in the language of Pali. I think it's a beautiful way, no matter how difficult the day was to end in kind of a lyrical, you know, poetic way. It's kind of beautiful. It's a little bit like a lullaby for those of us on the East Coast and certainly Christina, who will be heading to bed um, to get a good night's rest and to be ready to come back at it again tomorrow morning fresh and this is the meaning for those who are concerned with meaning like you know the meaning of words taking refuge in buddha dharma sangha is taking refuge in awakening to reality with each other so that's what we're doing uh chikan would you please we hope you enjoyed this episode 
This podcast is made possible by donations from listeners like you. For more information or to donate, please go to www.zencenternorthshore.org. Thank you.